Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you're listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! Woo! Woo, woo, woo! Man! Man, that track is hot! How you guys doing? You guys having a great week? I know I'm excited. You guys are feeling that energy from me, right? Right? You're feeling it? Are you feeling it? This is episode number 77 of Successfully Funded. So why do we do this, you're asking? I know, that's what everybody's wondering. So we put on this podcast because we want to give you, the listeners, um, the most up-to-date information on what's going on in crowdfunding. I'm going to have a great example coming up here uh, in my in my morning spiel um, about something we're currently going through for a client. But... Um, but yeah, so we, we talk to project creators while their campaign is active, while they're in the, the heat of the moment, right? When, when they've got all those big decisions going on and they're trying to figure out what they should be doing, that's when we want to talk to you. And these are projects that you know are making, raising good money. So today's episode um, is on the, uh, the Kickstarter campaign called The Jewel, and it's a heated smart mug for coffee and tea. So if you are a office worker and you love your coffee in the morning and, and you can't stand that it gets a little cold after a little, you know, after, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes, you want to check out this campaign. They're currently crushing it. They're over $120,000 on a $50,000 goal, and they still have got 22 days to go. So hopefully you guys, my listeners out there, check out this campaign and, and, and go back it. Um, so yeah, so that in, in, uh, interview with Wafik is coming up in a little bit. So, uh, so I'm happy to report the surgery yesterday for my kids went well. Um, they both currently have tubes in their ears and are feeling, I think, better. Um, surgery was, was pretty, pretty in and out. I mean, we got there at like six in the morning and got home about 1030 or so. Um, you know, only my daughter really kind of freaked out a little bit. She got real scared just cause she woke up by herself and we knew that was going to happen, but it, it woke up in recovery by herself. Um, but once we got in there and, you know, got it all calmed down, but boy, was that a, uh, there is just nothing, nothing awesome or comforting about seeing your kids attached to medical stuff and beeping and that whole environment, man, it was just, man, it took everything in me not to let tears constantly flow yesterday, you know? Um, uh, like I talk on my, on the other podcast that I'm on, uh, for, uh, you know, Stan magazines, the Stan cast, you know, we're all, we always talk about all these men issues, you know, and, and, and what is it to be a man? And it was challenging yesterday not to be just so overwhelmed with just, you know, and obviously not a major surgery, and I'm not trying to make more out of it, but just that whole ordeal, just seeing your kids in that sort of state, even if it's a small surgery, it's just, man, there is so much tension on the back of my shoulders, I can still feel it to this day, and I'm glad everything's great. Uh, my son actually had the first night last night where he didn't cough for like an hour and a half. That's usually been every night of his entire life, so he did not cough much last night. So, knocking on wood... Maybe stuff will get better. Now, obviously, my daughter has, still has a little bit of a cold, but but uh, I'll give you another one to say. The doctor did say too that um, for my son, they pulled out like this long glue thing of of just phlegm out of his ears. So yeah, so hopefully my son is hearing now. Maybe he can get on that path to be a a, uh, a sound engineer like his like his papa. You know, now that he can hear. So big stuff, big 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 stuff. Yes. So that happened yesterday. What else is going on? Well, let's break down a little bit about something that I have going on with a client right now. So some of you might know, we just launched a client that we launched a little early. It was, again, 
don't want to get too much into details because it's, you know, there's some, you know, I don't talk about everything. But this client wanted to launch and we launched early and, and I don't have control over some things. So whatever. But we're working, um, we, we've created a whole bunch of ads. We had, I think, over 100 ads basically uh, flooded Facebook. And the topic is a, a book on climate change. And it's a photography book of black and whites and really great book. Um, the photographer is well known in Italy and Switzerland. Um, you know, so he's got some clout and, and the topic is climate change. He went for two months, he went to Greenland and filmed what's happening to the Inuit people. So, um, you know, so, you know, that's the subject matter. So a lot of our ads are driven around, not only just, uh, are, are driven around climate change. That's a lot of our interest group. Well, since we've, you know, and we've been running ads, mind you, for the last almost two months, almost last sixty days, and and we've we, we haven't had any bots, we haven't had any negative things. We've had almost all positive responses to this. So we launched the ads Tuesday night, and all day yesterday, Tuesday night, and even into early this morning has been filled with hate comments and bots of climate deniers or fake climate deniers. So I've been in this mission, I've been diving into who are these people. And now we're talking about, we're getting, you know, uh, you know, Loanna Jones from, from middle Tennessee and you go to her page and she'll have 70 Facebook likes. And it looks like a person. There's some, there's some posts and everything is, you know, F Obama, Obama doing this, you know, it's just this. And, and they're bots. They're not real people. And they're leaving comments with broke, slightly broken English. So my client has been responding to these things, and I know he's just been probably like, "What? You know, this is odd." But yeah, we literally just got caught up in these, this Russian bot world because we have, uh, you know, a trendy, uh, you know, liberal, I guess, mindset interest. I'm blown away. You know, when we talk about why you hire an agency, th- this is part of these reasons, right? My my team, myself, Paul and Sean, we have been, I mean, you know, retweaking our strategy, retweaking interest groups. I mean, just basically pivoting on day one of a campaign, and you know, figuring out is there is there a way to combat this? If you would have asked me a couple months ago if we were going to be battling Russian bots, I would have. Or, you know, these trolls or whatever you want to call them. I would have said, no, I mean, come on. We're talking about a, a small photography book out of Italy. We, we wouldn't get, we're not going to get up in the landscape. And that's not true. So this is one of those things that I'm blown away with. Um, you know, there's no way to have predicted this. I don't, I mean, we just, I mean, maybe we could have, I guess. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, asking that question out loud to myself here. But I'm blown away. Flat out blown away, but we've been dealing with, and and you know, out of the hundred or so ads that I had to pivot and change and and do everything with last night, um, you know, it's amazing that almost every comment is coming from a bot like thing where these people won't have a profile or will you know, and, and will just be. It, it's funny once you see one, you get it from that point forward. But I see how they're tricking people. I see how people get caught up in it, and I got to tell you. It really is a cyber war on information, and it's blowing me away that it's affecting what I'm working on right now. And after this podcast, after I record this intro, I'm going to go back to battle here because I'm diving into you know specific ads that might have those words in it because those are the ones that we're finding they're being targeted. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So to, 
to stand here and say that it didn't, it didn't have an impact on you know our elections or it didn't have an impact on 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 our country you are wrong and that's not a fake news that's not an opinion you're just flat out wrong because if it's having an opinion on a photo book about climate change in Italy it has an impact on what we did here and i see i i just i see it completely and i'm i'm blown away just been blown away that's been my last 12 hours has just been dealing with this new f- fucking mess right out you know but we're pivoting we got some backers you know we're doing what we can you know yeah you, you just you just you just roll with what, you, what what gets thrown your way so what else is going on well i was up early this morning i was about 5 30 went and met with a kind of a business group I don't know if it's something we're going to be able to do because we our business just doesn't work so much on referrals um, uh, like this business. But, you know, it was good to get out. And, oh man, 7 o'clock in the morning is early for a meeting at 7 to 8 in the morning. But, you know, had a little shaking some hands. And, and it's always funny how interested people are in what, what you know, myself, what, what, what we do, this digital marketing. And, man, when you get people, you know, you know, who have established businesses who were started in the 90s and 80s, they look at me with just bonker eyes of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's, it, man, I, I would be very nervous if I had a business that was not functioning with any sort of social media or any sort of online presence. I, I would be nervous that, you know, as your crowd's getting, you know, older, right? Who, you know, you're, if you're trying to target people in their 20s or 30s because now they're ready for whatever you're working on, if you're not online, I just don't see how you're going to be surviving. So, you know, that kind of, th- th- my meeting this morning really cemented that sort of idea as well. But, but yeah, so I don't know. That's what's going around, around going on around here. I got to learn how to talk. Um, remember, do me my favor. Do some favors for me. Number one, make sure you check out Wafik and um, uh, The Jewel, right? That's who we're going to be interviewing here in just a moment. That, that conversation's coming up. Um, Go and tell a friend if you're digging what, what we're into. Share this on Facebook. Leave a comment or you know or on iTunes. Just share it, right? Tell people about what, you, what you're listening to. Share it with people. That's what we need here. And uh, if you want to join our community, just go to the website. And if you click on um, community, you can, you can join us there. And uh, yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and kick into my conversation with the jewel. And uh, yeah, if you're a coffee drinker, I think you're going to really, really dig this product. All I know we live all right well, people, we're, we're ready to go the red light's on my favorite time awesome yeah we're gonna make the best podcast ever are you excited about that I am. I am. I'm very excited. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, cool. So uh, why don't you tell my listeners a little bit um, about uh, your product that you're currently crowdfunding on Kickstarter? Um, so right now we're crowdfunding a product called the Jewel Smart Mug. Um, the, with the Jewel, what we wanted to do was, you know, we wanted to solve this problem that we personally had in our office, and that was our coffee getting cold. And when we looked at what was on the market, we saw that there were... There's like a whole bucket of heated mugs. Really sorry. Our yeah. our office our office has dogs and yeah. 
there's sometimes the mailman will scare them. The mailman. So, <laughs> That's it's cool. their enemy. Um, sorry about that. Um, okay. But yeah, so the jewel, we wanted to make a smart mug that was not super techy because the ones that were on the mark that are on the market that we noticed were really techy with uh, you know a digital readout on the outside a Bluetooth connectivity right, and an right. and an app where you can monitor certain t- whatever temperature your drinks at and we thought it was just a lot of baggage yeah um, so what we wanted to do was make a fully uh, functional smart mug that was analog so what we went with was a twist bottom that you know only you the user knows that the mug is a smart mug well, maybe if your coworker saw it on the on your desk they wouldn't think anything of it because the way we put in our features so for example when you put it on the coaster a light lights up but the light is so minimal that oh honestly if you're not looking for it you wouldn't see it right right it's not um, flashy huh not really, yeah. So uh, we we wanted to make a smart mug that didn't look super techy because we 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 just think the whole app and Bluetooth connectivity and stuff like that. See, a built-in battery, you know, was very common. Also, where the bottom of the mug had just a bunch of battery cells smushed in there that kept your drink at, at whatever temperature you wanted. Um, the problem with those products were that they were too expensive and a lot of things we didn't want, so we decided to make our own. So ours, the differentiating factors are that it's analog, no Bluetooth connectivity, no app. When you put it on the um, coaster, it will keep your drink at whatever temperature you set it at. Okay. Interesting. Cool. So so where does it go from problem in the office to, hey... We should, we should try something. What are those first steps like? Is there, you know, how does it go from a, a, a sketch on a napkin to all of a sudden you're on Kickstarter raising a ton of money? So Power Practical, the company, we've been doing Kickstarter campaigns since 2012. Our company was started on Kickstarter with a product called the Power Pot. Okay. Um, and the, that campaign we did was back in 2012. And we've since have Kickstarted seven more products. Or six more products. Um, so this is actually our eighth campaign. Um, but the way we do this now is we have industrial designers who have their own ideas. We come together. They drop what it would ideally look like. Um, and if you watch our video, you'll see there's some shots of really old sketches and stuff like that. Where right, right. Um, you get the general idea of the cup, but then the finished product looks nothing like those initial sketches. That's cool. So, so how big is your team then that's working on this? Is this something that like, it's more of a, like an agency type of vibe or is it still a a smaller operation? No, it's still a pretty small operation. There's eight of us. Um, originally there was four of us. Um, and we've done four or five campaigns with just four people. Um, since then we have, uh, nicer designers now we can afford designers that are in-house um so these guys are working in our office designing products from the ground up um and we also have you know our we have a really nice 3d printer we have a full prototyping uh area in our office where we we you know from starting fires because we've you know worked on camping products in the past Mm -hmm. um to lighting products everything's uh 
you know, all the research and development is done all under this one roof. That's, 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 that's very cool. Um, so how do you guys then describe yourself? I mean, uh, are you, I mean, cause you're in house, it seems like for most of this. So are you like a design firm or are you this new hybrid of design slash funding? That's kind of, that, that I'm seeing starting to happen, uh, uh, in the United States here. Yeah. So you're right on the money for the hybrid because we're, you know, we started as a very small company making products in the outdoor camping world. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally we tried going into traditional brick and mortar retail. We were in REI, Cabela's, Eastern Mountain Sports. We have, pro- we've had products in Staples, Brookstone. Um, but what down the line, I mean, yeah, after like six months to a year of doing that, we realized that we were just too small. We don't have television commercials. We don't have the marketing support to, you know, see the sell through happen on a, mm-hmm. let's say like a Sam's Club or an REI sure. or a Cabela's. Um, so in the beginning of 2016, we kind of pivoted to this new model where, you know, people go direct to consumer. Our model is to go on Kickstarter and then we launch on Amazon. It's all us. No one buys our stuff from us and resells it wholesale in the United States. Outside right. of the United States is a different story. Right. Um, yep. But we are this new hybrid that we go from Kickstarter to Amazon and our website, and we've you know done pretty well with that model. We understand this whole digital marketing, you know, digital ad world, mm-hmm. um, and we you know we have a. T- I, I myself do a bunch of our digital advertising, and then we have one other person that does it with me so we you know we we're trying to reach customers on the internet you wouldn't you won't see our products in traditional brick and mortar stores yeah i i think uh well i think you know that you're onto that but it's amazing how many people still have that like fantasy of oh i'm I'm in every target every walmart and they just don't comprehend the mass scale of what that equals you know you need super bowl ads like you're you know to, to move product in all of these places. So I, I love what you guys are doing here. I think it's a very intriguing model. So how, when, you, when you look at a product like the Jewel, how long is that time frame from initial idea to, um, to you know, prototyping and all that stuff? Like, like how long have you been working on this product uh, particular? So the Jewel, it, it's been at least uh, seven months, I would say. So mm-hmm. we have um, probably five versions that we worked on. And this was the final version that came out uh, that we launched was the one that was the winner, not in terms of what we wanted necessarily. Like it has everything we wanted, but we also have to make sure that we can mass produce it. Um, Because this is a mistake a lot of other Kickstarter creators have made in the past where, you know, they designed this product in California, let's say. And, you know, the designers figure out how to build it, but there is this big question, will China be able to make it the way we right. designed it? Um, so for circuit boards and stuff like that, you know, there are there have been times where our designers have uh, created a four-layer circuit board, but in China they don't want to produce it because there's four times that they can make a mistake. So they want it in two layers. But we didn't, you know, we wouldn't, we don't necessarily know that until we actually send them the board. Right, right. Um so this is this is a mistake we've made in the past, and we've learned from it. So uh, that's why our lead time on a campaign is so long because we we take all this stuff into account beforehand. Because in the past we've done it after the campaign has launched, right. and 
uh, it took, you know, it, it takes us more than a year to deliver because of just these hiccups. Um, so we try to minimize that. So, so speaking of hiccups, so like for the jewel, uh, you know, what was kind of, was there like a major pivot point where, you know, from the original idea that you, or a ro- major roadblock that you just couldn't get past, like, we, we, we can't do this, you know, uh, it can't shoot fireworks or whatever, you know, was there something that you just couldn't do that you had to pivot from? Yes. Um, so we're, you know, with Kickstarter, what's nice is you get this initial feedback from a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Kickstarter, it's really interesting because they're the the best for this type of feedback. You know, they'll rip you apart. Right, um, right. Or if you, you know, if you give them four choices, they'll ask for eight. You give them eight, they'll ask for 16. Um, so the, we've we've noticed that, that that's like a huge part of our pro- product development. So with this one, it was just appealing to everyone at the same time. So with the Jewel, you know, we wanted to, one product that worked for the commuter and the office desk dweller, um, one that looked good and was versatile enough to work in most cars. Sure. Um, so the car coaster was an issue uh, for us because, uh, you know, the depth of every coaster is uh, different or a yeah, cup holder in your car is different. So right. we had to make sure uh, the coaster was flat and thin enough where when you put the mug on top, it didn't tip over and things like that. There's uh, So those were some of the hiccups and the rest of the hard part, I would say, was making sure that we're able to keep 12 ounces of liquid hot at the temperature we say um sure which uh originally the 12 ounce wasn't an issue but right now i don't know if you've seen our comments everyone wants a larger cup and we're we're i mean we can definitely make one but we can't say yes right now because our guys are testing will it be able to do the same exact thing Everybody needs some more coffee, huh? I think my wife would probably be that person because, man, I just like, how are you drinking so much liquid? Just, just a lot of liquid, you know? We've, yeah, and another thing we've noticed is like, you know, people are trained to, uh, like, for example, like people who work in a traditional office, like uh, nine to five. You know, when they go into work, they're they walk go buy a Starbucks. They'll buy the largest size coffee because that's like what they're used to doing because they, they want the large amount of coffee. And most of the people we surveyed, they never finish their actual coffee because it, it's the temperature issue. Right. It's too, uh, before you can finish your 20 ounce coffee, it's cold. So that's, that's something we've noticed and we're trying to message that, but the perceived value for these cups, you know, everyone wants a 20 ounce cup essentially. Sure. sure. Everybody wants what they don't really know. (laughs) Like they don't really, you know, but Hey, that's what I want, you know? Uh, people, the consumer, right? So, you know, kind of the follow-up to that, maybe the pivot question is, you know, was there a, um, a major milestone moment where you realized that everything, all the pieces were coming together, that this is a, something that, you know, that this product is going to be cool. People are going to be into it. It's going to do well on Kickstarter. Was there a moment where you guys all stood back and said, yeah, we got something here? Honestly, once we had a fully working prototype, like the one you see in the video, um, that's when we realized that we had something because um, we started, you know, photographing it, and we started just seeing what it looks like. And you know, we when, when we took a s- step back, we were like, "Wow, this this actually looks like a really clean product." We yeah. uh, were, you know, we we 
we started with grungy beginnings where you know four guys none of us were design designers we were sales guys and engineers um trying to sell stuff but now that we have like a whole you know two or three guys that are just for design we we were baffled by how nice everything looked the page itself the video you know the the Mm -hmm. design guys are really good at that stuff (laughs) we're we're not (laughs) um so we, we, we have a lot of help. Um, I mean, the team is so awesome. They're, this, uh, our, some of our designers are just straight out of college, so it's great working with them. They're, we started this company straight out of college, so being able to work with people who are right out of college is really great for us. That's cool. So you know, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I'm intrigued with how many successful interviews I've had with people coming out of Salt Lake City or Utah in general. I mean, I probably have out of 80 episodes uh, over the last year or so, I, I mean, I probably have had 20 conversations, which is a huge number. So what's going on in Utah that's fostering, you know, hybrid uh, companies like yours, successful campaigns? What, you know, what's the environment like there? It's pretty awesome, honestly, um, To for for the startup community. We have, you know... 45 minutes south and north of Salt Lake City, there are two cities, Provo and Ogden. Within those these three metropolitan areas, there are so many startups. The cost of living for young people here is low, where compared to you know San Francisco, San Jose, um, Chicago, New York, all those cities. Were um, and there is a thriving startup community. I mean, I I know I personally know like 10 or 15. Kickstarter creators that have raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter, um, Ravian, Nomadic Travel Bags, or Basics Wallet. You know those guys are. Yep. They're all like not even fifteen miles from my office, and they, you know, we all know each other. Right, right. It's yeah, that, that, it's crazy. Like I, I just, you know, it. Like, is there, you know, incubators or, or tax incentives? What might be happening maybe at the grassroots level that isn't happening? And let's just say, I'm in Detroit right now, you know, we're not seeing this sort of influx. So, so what might be happening at maybe like the political level that's driving this as well? I honestly think they're, they, I mean, the economy itself is pretty thriving here where, you know, programmers and stuff like that, they, they have no trouble getting jobs. We have Adobe, eBay, Overstock. Um, there are lots of startups that are based out of here. Thumbtack, um, Nuvi, all the B2B or SaaS companies that do, you know, services for other companies, they are based out of here. The I, I don't know what's happening on the total grassroots level, honestly, but there we I do see this like uh, tradition of innovation coming out of Salt Lake City or Utah in general. Yeah. Um, but the other flip side to that is, you know, the we're for me. I, I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. I came to Utah because of the outdoor lifestyle, you know, the mm. camping, the hiking. I ski pretty much right. five months of the year. Um, and so the, these things I'm able to do within like 45 minutes of my house. So that's that's the appeal for me. And I think a lot of people come out here for the outdoors. I mean, there's so much to do here that's not your traditional city vibe. That's cool. So, so that's, you mentioned a little bit, but so you grew up in Washington. Um, you know, what's your background? Um, you know, what did you do growing up? Um, I grew up, yeah, right outside Washington, D.C. We're, you know, in a big city. <laughs> and I went to school in D.C. for two years, and then I moved out to Utah because I just wanted to change a pace, wanted to be able to ski and 
go hiking all the time, essentially. Um, what did you study in school? Finance. Um, I So I met the founders of Power Practical while I was a sophomore at the University of Utah. Um, the founders were, the two of the guys were both material science engineers, and they they had invented, like, come up with this idea for a product and it was called the power pot a power pot the power pot is a cooking pot that generates electricity through thermoelectrics hmm. um so it's you know you put it over a fire with water in it and the handle has a wire that comes out of it and anywhere you can make a fire you can charge your phone essentially so instead of taking the sun and turning into power you can take an actual fire that's cool <laughs> that, i bet you that would be good for camping yeah. exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's cool so uh what your parents do or what do they do um my parents uh, moved to the united states from bangladesh okay um back in the early 90s uh, my dad owned his own business he he essentially does textile he used to sell textiles like t-shirts and stuff to uh larger companies so a very entrepreneur entrepreneurs like mindset to him uh, yes and no. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, they, they, when I was younger, they weren't, I wasn't really big on camping and stuff like that, but it was like, when I got a little older, I got into, you know, this going in the middle of the woods <laughs> with my friends. <laughs> That's cool. So, you know, I mean, so let's move a little bit over to maybe just the kickstart itself. So, you know, because you're on whatever, was it number eight? project number eight what have you seen maybe changes wise in in terms of crowdfunding from 2012 to 2016 2017 what have been the the big changes that you've seen one big change we've noticed is getting pr it's much harder now because of there's so much noise in the crowdfunding space a lot of Mm -hmm. people who who haven't delivered there have been drone companies that have like you know taken money and went bankrupt so there's there's this uh, there is this negative idea towards crowdfunding because, um, you know, even to this day, when I reach out to some publications, people will reply to me and say, hey, let me know when the product's out. We don't cover crowdfunding. Right. Um, because so many people have gotten burned in the past. So that's that's one thing we noticed because back in 2012, you know, we were getting organic posts from Engadget and CNET, TechCrunch, um, and it was a huge part of our funding. But today we're you know it's getting harder and harder to be on the popular section and things like that people you know if you look at the top 10 projects right now on kickstarter that are not board games uh i pretty much can tell you that all of them are using an agency for their ads um because the number of people you need to send to a a kickstarter campaign today to stay within that popular section is really competitive yeah yeah so, so Don, do you guys keep everything in house? Do you guys ever go out to an agency, or do you guys just keep it all local? Um, for in the past, we've we have worked with agencies, and we do work with agencies on certain campaigns. Um, it all depends on what product it is, mm-hmm. um, but we we try to go as far as we can on our own. And the agencies are just like a, a service we keep in our pocket if we need it. Um, right, right. So in the past. We did a campaign for a product called the Luminoodle. We never, we didn't use an agency. It was, it was going so well that we didn't have to. But then there has been products where we, you know, it was we were a little underwhelmed. And on the last ten days, you know, the agency comes in and helps us out with 
digital marketing ads and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we try to we try to keep everything in house as much as we can. So, so for somebody like you, what what do what would you say makes a great Kickstarter campaign? You know, is, is there a overall theme or a, or just something you want to see from it? What do you think makes makes a campaign really pop? I think it's all about the product. If the product is compelling and the price point's great, um, on Kickstarter, you know, you have to do the obvious. You have to offer the backers a incentive, you know, a large percentage off for pre-ordering or you know, extra items just because, you know, Kickstarter exclusive pledge levels. Um, those two things I think are the most important. And then how well you prepared. Um, I know a lot of people who launch camp, they want to, you know, get it out of the way and launch the campaign before they want to, you know, invest more time into a campaign. Uh, we don't think that's a good idea because we think that if you have a more buttoned up campaign, you're more likely to do 10 times better right. than going along the way and making changes. Cause you know, when you have a campaign with more than a couple of thousand backers, that's, you know, over 2000 people, individuals that you have to persuade to do something. Yep. Um, and doing updates, you know, if you do too many updates, they get mad. If you don't do enough updates, they also get mad. So you, you know, it's, it's, you're on thin ice with when you have, and we've, in, if you put together all our campaigns, you know we have over twenty five thousand backers. Wow, that's a and so that's that's really, yeah. I mean, our customer service person, you know, can be very annoyed during a Kickstarter campaign because they're just getting ripped apart. But it's just you know the game we play, so it's we understand. So, so for for the jewel, what what do you think was the number one strategy that you guys kind of focused on, or was there a what, um, um, a central focus um, before you launched in terms of like a pre marketing strategy? Was there one thing that that you guys really focused on? Um, the jewel's the first tech, like very techie product we've launched. Um, in the past, our products have been camping and outdoor, so we you know we know what demographic we sell to. The jewel was is very different compared to our past products. So before we launched the campaign, we were just really trying to nail down our target audience. So the age demographic and who are we targeting, let's say, within the United States. Um, there's an obvious group, you know, the early adopters, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, crowdfunding crew, which we know because we're on Kickstarter, but outside of that, who is it that we're targeting? And I can tell you right now that the Jewel is a much younger audience. We're going, um, the people that are converting have, you know, they're between the ages of 25 and 40 years old. Um, and they all have jobs and not all of them, but most of them, you know, are working in the tech industry or something like that. We're in an office, let's just say, and they're interested in tech products. Um, so that's that's been what we prepared for. So if you look at the jewel, you know we we didn't come out of the gates humming like we're we're I don't know where we're at right now, but we're like close to seventy five thousand dollars maybe. Um, and in the past, you know, on day one, we've one of our campaigns in the past on day one raised eighty thousand dollars, so more than we have in the last whole week. But we understand that the, since this is a new category for us, we're you know we're we're trying to do our best to make sure we talk to that audience. Now, now because of your guys' kind of hybrid of an agency, design firm, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> how, how much do you guys struggle with branding power practical 
as a thing compared to the individual products? Is that something that you guys talk about internally a lot? Just, you know, do you want people to look at Power Practical and go, oh, these guys just make cool stuff? Or is it individually based, you know, per product? That's a really good question. Um, so this is this is something that has been coming up recently in our company. Um, we didn't think about it in the past uh, very much, mm-hmm. but the, we have a product called the Luminoodle, and it's a lighting product. And and right now we have like five products under that Luminoodle umbrella. So you know, people there are people who like refer to us as you know they think the Luminoodle is our company name. Right, right. That's the um, company. And so we've 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 this is a dilemma we're having right now. We this is this is a new problem. Right, it's a good <laughs> um, problem, but it's you know. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're you know we've, we've talked about rebranding. We've talked about you know launching brands that are specific to these product umbrellas that we have, but nothing set in stone. We have no idea what we're going to do on that front. <laughs> That's funny. So if, if you were talking to you know somebody thinking about launching, um, let's just say a, a tech. Uh, a, a tech product on Kickstarter, what would you advise them to do? What, what would you tell them that is their first step? That you think they've got a good product, they got a good prototype. Where would you tell them to go next? Um, I always tell creators to you know start testing the market. So collecting emails, landing page with a call to action on the bottom. You know whether you say coming soon or something like that, where people can say they're interested, give you their email. Um, that's the most important thing you can do because the more the more you can stack your books before the products actually launch, the better you are, better off you are when you launch. Because, you know, with day one of your campaign, you have to drive the mass amount of traffic if you want to get noticed on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So whatever you can do to make that bring that huge number of eyes to your page, I say you do that. So whether it's landing pages, doing giveaways with other brands, if you're a brand in a certain space, you know, outdoor camping, for example, you can reach out to other brands and say, hey, we'll give away some existing products, but I want to collect emails. Um, so whatever you can do to drive as many eyes as possible on that first two to four days of your campaign, I tell creators that they should do. That's cool. So, you know, with 31 days to go in your campaign, and like you said, you're, you're over 75K, what, what is like, at this moment, what is it a feeling like in the office? You know, it, it, you know and when, what is a strategy that you guys are kind of start to, start to implement? You know, um, just you've already funded, you want to keep that momentum going. What does the landscape feel like now? Um, right now, you know, everyone's optimistic. We with thirty one days to go, we we know there's a long way left on the campaign. But right now, you know, we're we're actually we're focused because this is like the middle part of our campaign. We can after this first seven days, we consider it the middle part. Um, this is when we actually try to entertain all the ideas our backers are feeding us. So you know, the bigger cup and the wireless charging and stuff all the features they have are different colors um whatever they have proposed we actually try this is when we actually figure out if we can entertain any of those ideas um so an obvious one for example is a a larger capacity on the mug and you know we're already testing but that's that's something you know we'll, we'll we'll probably know by the end of the week if we can make it happen or not and by the beginning of next week, we'll announce it. 
and let's say we introduce a larger capacity, you know, that would trigger new pledge levels, new price point for the larger one compared to the smaller one, or do we scrap the smaller one and go with just the larger one? These are mm-hmm. all questions that we have to answer within the next week. That's cool. So, you know, was it a challenge, maybe even the first campaign to, to, to be open to that feedback? I know some, some project creators are, are, you know, no, I made the perfect thing. I don't want to hear that feedback. How do you guys openly feel about welcoming that, that sort of feedback from backers? We love it, but there are lines. So, um, and that's something we're very transparent about. We're, you know, we, we have designers, we have gone through the manufacturing process of the jewel already. So we can't make these drastic changes that would change everything because it's just not feasible for us, but there are things we can wiggle on. Um, again, with the capacity, it's not an issue. It's just a size thing, um, making new molds, things like that. So, you know, maybe our, our funding goals are 50. If we need to make new molds for a whole new size, we might have to add another 20 grand to that. But, but those are just things we do on the fly, but we're, you know, the, the feedback, we love it. We love the feedback, but there are definitive lines where we can't cross them. Mm -hmm. And and was there a strategy at all in terms of picking the goal number? Yes, we always have a strategy around that. Um, Depending on the product, you know, we've set uh, campaign goals lower in the past than what we really want. Just so, just because we know we're going to fund within the first day. Mm -hmm. So if it's a $20 product in the outdoor camping space, um, we know our our list consists of that demographic. So we know it'll go really well. And if the price point's low enough, you know, we just say, hey, let's just set it at $25,000 and we know we'll get it on day one. But really, we need 40. Right, right, right. Um, Because it's the molds. Because all we're trying to do is pay for our first mold and tooling fees, which on the front end is heavy for creators like us Mm -hmm. um, because every part is a different mold. And, you know, those things are anywhere from $2,500 to $20,000. And so depending on what kind of molding we're doing, like, you know, you do hard anodized aluminum die casting it's it's really expensive fifteen thousand dollars for a mold twenty thousand dollars for a mold so for every new item we have we have to pay that up front so that's what kickstarter actually helps us with that initial investment is what we bring in and the larger the order the better it is but you know the real needle mover for us is that being not having to outlay that cash right at the beginning before we sold anything Right, right. And is that something that typically you find locally or is that something that you have to outsource to you know, China or something like that? So we have great relationships with the factories we work with in China. Um, and these guys all have their you know, friends or people they know that do certain other things in the manufacturing process. But our founder, David Toledo, he actually flies to China every other month essentially and is there for anywhere from two weeks to four weeks at a time Mm. because we, you know, when he's there on the ground, we're able to just turn things around way faster. The molding process, you know, because otherwise this is how it would work. This is how it would work. They would ship us what they have, you know, FedEx it overnight even. Right. 
costs hundreds of dollars. And then once it gets to us, we, you know, one of our designers would like to make minor changes. And then so we ship it back so that we lose another day. Mm-hmm. And then they prototype that, get it back to us three days later. Whereas when he's there, we Skype with him at one in the morning our time and make sure everything's clean. Right, right. And so it's it's cheaper for us to send someone out there and just sit there and make yeah. sure everything's going well than having to ship back and forth. And you never want to ship something over to the United States that you won't sell. We you know people we know people who've been in that boat where they've brought it over two thousand units and none of them work. Ooh. That would be a bad day. Yeah, and we never want that. So we're, no, you know, no, no. we'd we'd rather buy a ticket and be sitting there. Yeah, yeah. That that those are things that kill agencies or or companies. You know, that that's that's something that'll just put you out of business instantly if you can uh, overcome it. Absolutely, yeah, definitely don't want that. So so, what is the next uh, five years? Um, or well, you know, let's talk about the jewel first. You know, what where do you guys see the jewel going um, as an idea or as a brand in the next few years? Hmm. With the Jewel, you know, it's, again, first product in this category that we've made. Um, there's more to come. I don't know if we're going to release more Jewel products, uh, or in, but that's something we'll – that's definitely on the table. Yeah. Because, you know, every time we launch a new product, we look at the long term. We're not here as like a one-and-done type of company. We're, we're – we're looking to create around products and make sure we have multiple SKUs. So for the jewel, you know, we're going to go into our same model, go into Amazon and sell on our website. And down the line, we'll see if there, if it makes sense for us to make other products around it. And then, you know, on, uh, yeah, 31 days to go. So like on day 40, when all the money starts coming in, what is the first step that you guys start to do at that point um, in terms of fulfillment? What, what starts to happen? So first of all, the moment we get the money, we're opening our molds. The, so all the, all the work that we've been doing for the last three months on tooling and stuff like that, it's all ready to go. We just haven't paid for it yet. So um, we have to put down our down payment. And the moment we do that, they start. Uh, actually working the the factories actually start working for us and then you know there's iterations of the molds you know they may you know, sometimes there are mistakes in the beginning so we make sure that's all done so that's the first thing we do with the money and the second thing we do is we come up with a like the the packaging and things like that mm-hmm. the things that actually people will be receiving because there's so many things involved with making a product. Making the product is one moving part, but the you know the insert for the box and the instruction manual and what the packaging looks like and what words are on the packaging. Yeah. Um, and if there's like you know if you have a wall plug or a USB cable, make sure, you know you got to make sure you have all the proper certifications. You don't want like a broken cable, even though it's a you know just a charging cable for the product if the charging cable doesn't work the whole product is crap right so we we we, you know we we go through all those moving parts and make sure everything's in place and then our sourcing team you know it's up to them to make sure the product's being made in the proper way and after that you know we look into pr strategies so a month before the product's coming out 
all we're talking about is who's going to get the first 100 samples, what publications, and then it goes into shipping to our backers. And the moment we start shipping to our backers, we keep asking for feedback because we want to know if there's any big red flags on a product. Sure, right, right. And we right. don't know until we've delivered hundreds of them. Yep. So that's the, that's the cycle we follow. Wow. That's probably some exciting times there. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's exciting and nerve-wracking. Yeah. So, you know, so kind of last question here, you know, so what is the next five years do you, do you feel like looks like for Power Practical? Where, where do you guys see the company going and, 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 and what does growth and scale look like for you guys? Um, for us, you know, we're trying to innovate on multiple fronts. So for the next couple of years, we're going to focus on having multiple designers uh, doing multiple projects at the same time. Not necessarily a Kickstarter campaign at the same time, mm-hmm. but working on products so for example for the after the you you know we're we did a kickstarter six months ago for a product called the sparker it's actually going to be launched next month so we're continuously working we're on that pr strategy Mm -hmm. part of that campaign and you know it's just like this ball we're just rolling into more and more products and the way we we expect to scale is putting more people on the design and the front end team Mm -hmm. Um, because the digital marketing and things like that they're constant you know it's whether you're selling the jewel the sparker luminoodle power pot it's the same thing uh, i get to do um but you know the the ideation and the r&d that side is where we actually are investing more time and money because they're the ones who come up with these products and the way we think about it is we've done seven and we're, we want to do more and more in different categories to see what's working. And we, you know, it's totally, we totally understand that one, one of our campaigns will eventually fail Mm -hmm. and, and we're totally ready for it. We're not, you know, we're not going to be super bummed just because one failed because we already have a plan. We have the next one kind of planned out. So, you know, we will just roll into the next one and, not get too bummed about what didn't work. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you've got enough in the bag already that you've, you've, you've proven success. You're making some really cool products. So, well, well I, I mean, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day, man. This was, this was awesome to, for you to, to talk about the jewel. Tell my listeners a little bit what you're working on, your company. A lot of really cool stuff going on here, man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks so much, though. Uh, why don't you tell uh, my listeners a little bit about where they could find outside of Kickstarter, where they can uh, learn more about uh, the company and um, and your products. Perfect. So you can learn more about our products at www.powerpractical.com. Um, yeah, we have outdoor camping, even products for your television, backlight, you know, lighting products. So you guys can check that out. And we're also on Amazon. So if you search power practical on amazon we have a full amazon store that's totally run by me <laughs> um so that's about it cool awesome well, i appreciate it again like i said thanks so much for your time and uh yeah good luck on the rest of the rest of this kickstarter and i'm i'm sure you guys are gonna hit a major home run here thanks so much awesome thanks jeff All right, how about that conversation? Pretty interesting business model they're working on. It's definitely something that Woodshed here is aspiring to to get into in terms of kind of creating this sort of um, hybrid agency where manufacturing is a part of 
of what we do here as well. Um, it is definitely the, the, the catch-22 I see a lot of project creators get into where they just don't have the capital for the molding or whatever it might be. So that's something we're working on here at Woodshed, trying to solve these issues for people. So, all right, song we're listening to, it's actually a dual song, um, song that I wrote uh, after Hurricane Katrina. I was really impacted, I don't know, mentally from it um, back in the day when, when, when that uh, event happened. And I wrote this song called When the Walls Came Down and then um, had a tag at the end called The Forgotten that, that we'll play as well. And that was recorded actually on an old, about 130-year-old baby grand piano I had in my farmhouse at the time. So um, hope you guys enjoy the song and I hope you guys have a great week and I will talk to you all on Monday.